My name is Josh. Uh, if you don't know who I am, um, Paul has asked me to speak tonight, so, um, and the Lord has given me a word, so I'm going to do my best to deliver it. Um, we're in a series called This Is Us, and um, we've been really making our way through the book of Acts and talking about um, what the early church really looked like and kind of getting back to our roots and uh, really kind of understanding that. And last week, or last, last week, last month, um, we kind of, we went, made our way through the ch uh, chapter 19 of Acts and, and talked about how God was doing incredible things um, through Paul, how he was doing incredible miracles and casting out demons and even using uh, Paul's handkerchief um, of all things. And when people would come in contact with his handkerchief, he, they were healed and, and demons uh, left them. And tonight, we're going to be talking uh, from Acts 20, which is a few months after uh, the events in Acts 19. Um, and Paul is, is on his way to Jerusalem at this point. And, and those things happened in Ephesus. And so he, he calls together the elders um, of the church in Ephesus, and he, uh, and he brings them to this island that he sailed to on his way out towards Jerusalem to say goodbye. And in Acts, in Acts 20, uh, verse 17, it says this, However, from Miletus, Paul sent word to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church to meet him there. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know well how I lived when I was with you, from the first day that I set foot in Asia until now, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came on me because of the plots of the Jews. You know how I did not shrink back in fear from telling you anything that was for your benefit, or from teaching you in public meetings and from house to house, solemnly and wholeheartedly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, urging them to turn in repentance to God and to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And now... Compelled by the Spirit and obligated by my convictions, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly and emphatically affirms to me in city after city that imprisonment and suffering await me. But I do not consider my life as something of value or dear to me, so that I may with joy finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify faithfully of the good news of God's precious, undeserved grace, which makes us free of guilt, of the guilt of sin, and grants us eternal life. And now listen carefully. I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And then he continues in verse 28. Take care. And be on guard for yourselves, for the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd, tend, feed, guide the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I'm gone, ferocious wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse and distorted things to draw away the disciples after themselves as their followers. He says, look, I'm leaving, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
And I know this, that I'm going to be thrown in prison and I'm going to experience harm. I might even die there. But if I don't die there, I know this much that I'm never going to see you again. What a hopeless picture this paints for these elders in the church and and really uh, for Paul. I mean, he might die. He's going to his death. And I mean, think of it this way. I mean, Paul was with these people for the better part of four years. And later on in, in the chapter, it says that he spent three years with them night and day building their faith. And now he's leaving to never to return. But then he starts to water a seed of hope. He says in verses 31 through 32, he says, Therefore, be continually alert, remembering that for three years, night or day, I did not stop admonishing and advising each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God placing you in his protective, loving care. I commend you to the word of his grace, to the counsel and promises of his unmerited favor. His grace is able to build you up and to give you the rightful inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then the writer continues in verse 36 through 37. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep openly and threw their arms around Paul's neck and repeatedly kissed him, grieving and distressed, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would never see him again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You know, I would say that I, I believe in cause and effect. I believe in sowing and reaping. And, and generally that there's things that if you do them, um, that are in scripture, that if you do them, then you might have a nice existence, right? Um, they can be repackaged, and a lot of times we see this with, with self-help books. Um, they take things out of scripture, and then they kind of spin a humanistic point of view on it, and they put it in a book, and they make all kinds of money from it, and, and, um, and it might help some people. But what happens when cause and effect don't add up? What happens when life isn't fair? When the promises of God seem to not be working in your favor? Maybe you're working hard and you're loving people, but a curse seems to be following you wherever you go. We all deal with varying degrees of struggle and pain. Whether that's you not knowing if you're going to be able to pay your bill your next bill. Or maybe you have a wayward child that just won't follow your instruction. Or you're dealing with unexpected loss or abuse or maybe a chronic sickness or disease. You know, an outside perspective, looking at Paul's uh, hopeless uh, future and, and really looking at all of the apostles and what they experience in their life, I mean, it paints a hopeless picture. And you, 
in your pain, in your hopelessness, just like Paul, the apostle, you have every reason to relinquish hope. And sometimes I think that, I think that Christians are well-intentioned. And don't get me wrong, I think um, a lot of us, you know, we, we have good intentions. We, we approach people that are dealing with hopelessness and pain and, and suffering. We, do, we approach them with love and, and we really want to fix their problems, right? I know I'm like that. Um, but I think we approach it the wrong way a lot of times. And, and I find myself... Um, I just actually, uh, whenever the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about this, he, uh, he reminded me of a time recently where I did just this. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of times we ask the wrong question. So when somebody is dealing with hopelessness or, or sinking into despair, we ask them, you know, are you reading your Bible? Have you prayed about it or, you know, fasted? Do you want to come to church with me? Um, or, and this is the one that I'm guilty of, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I need to call this guy and tell him I'm sorry, but are you giving? So the situation is that somebody came to me, and they didn't know if they were going to pay their bill, and I asked them, are you tithing? What that really amounts to is a transaction belief that reinforces the doubts triggered by their hopelessness in the first place. It, in essence, is saying that if I do what I should be doing, if I do X, Y, and Z, then God is responsible for my happiness. And this way of thinking made Paul extremely irritated, he says in Galatians, to the point where he says to the church in Galatia, you're foolish, thoughtless, and superficial because you're distorting the gospel of grace. And instead, Scripture tells us how we're supposed to respond to the hopeless around us. It says our speech should be gracious and seasoned with salt. And what that means is that we should be kind and pleasant. And that we should speak wisely and discerning. It says to carry one another's burdens. And what does that mean? It means go and make a meal for them. Go run their errands. Straighten up their house. Watch their kids. Carry one another's burdens. It says also to be ready in First Peter says, be ready with a gentle and respectful answer when questioned about your reason for hope. I can't, sometimes we get irritated when we're questioned about the things of God, like people should know, and, and, and especially when they're harsh and combative toward us. And this next one is, is difficult because I think um, a lot of times, as Christians, we're supposed to have it all together. We're supposed to have the answers, right? But it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Go cry with them. 
You don't have to have the answer. And finally, join in prayer with them. It's not about, oh, yes, brother, I'll pray for you. It's about going to their house, taking them aside, and actually praying with them. You may say, okay, Josh, um, that's well and good. You know, I, I get what I'm supposed to do as a hopeful person, but, you know, I'm not the one that's riding the Jesus wave of hopefulness. I'm the one that's the grain of sand being pummeled by the waves beneath me. How can I have hope when all seems hopeless? And I believe the answer to that question was revealed in what we read previously. So let's go back to Acts 20, verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore, be continually alert, remembering that for three years, night or day, I did not stop admonishing and advising each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God, placing you in his protective, loving care. And I commend you to the word of his grace, the counsel and promises of his unmerited favor. His grace is able to build you up and give you the rightful inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The first thing he says is be on guard. Remember when God showed out in the past. Write it down. Create a monument of it. Get a tattoo of it. Put a bracelet on, tie a string around your finger, but remember how God showed up in the past. The next thing he says is, recognize we are God's children and not God. In verse 32 he said, now I entrust you to God. That means you are God's. Possessive. (laughs) Acknowledge that you're under his wings. The next thing, regard the testimony of his grace. Consider, it says in verse 32, the word of his grace, the counsel and promises of his unmerited favor. Next, rely on the promise of what lies ahead. Trust in that which his grace is able to give you. The inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And lastly, request and release. It says in verses 36 and 37, when he said that these things, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep openly. Sometimes we hold things back. You know, we do it from those around us, and we do it from God a lot of times. I don't know why. It's like we can hide something from God, but we hold back. If you're angry with God, let him know. I know that sounds outlandish to some of you, but if you're angry with God, let him know. I think of Habakkuk, and what he said was, in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, he said, How long must I call for help, but you don't listen, God? you're upset, cry, because God can understand you through your tears. If you need to confess, confess, request, 
and release. This is us. We have a reason for hope. And why? It's because we serve a God that is not up on his mountain that requires us to check off a list before we can approach him and climb up his holy hill. No, he descended and took on our humanity and experienced this life that we live. So, whether you're sitting in a corner, hugging your knees, under the weight of pain and hopelessness, or you're incredibly hopeful and you're soaring like an eagle, God is right there with you. He says to you, you are never alone. And as the pastors and elders come, there was a father that approached Jesus. And the story is outlined in Mark. I believe it's chapter 14 or 15, somewhere around there. But a father approaches Jesus and he's hopeless. He says, my son has seizures and I've tried everything. It's so bad that he's unable to talk. And sometimes, you know, when we're near a fire, he's thrown into the fire and he gets burned. And there's other times where we've been next to a body of water and, and he's thrown down, having a seizure, and he's almost drowned. So Jesus asks him to bring his son to him. And immediately, when the boy sees Jesus, he's thrown down and has a seizure. So Jesus walks over to him, and he asks his father, how long has this been happening? And he says, since he was a little boy. He says, please have mercy, and please heal him if you can. Jesus responds to him, if, if you can. And he says, everything is possible for those who believe. Then the man cries out in an instant, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So Jesus casts out the demon and the boy is healed. And what I think that 
it means by I believe, help my unbelief. It sounds contradictory. But what I believe is that the Father is like, this has gone on for so long. I've prayed. I'm doing the best that I can to follow the law. I even had your disciples pray for him. And nothing changed. This seems like a hopeless case that I'm just going to have to, and he's going to have to endure his whole life. Help me with my doubts. And tonight, you may be in need of a miracle. But hopelessness has crept in and produced some doubt. I want you to know that's okay. Tell the Lord about it. And I invite you to come pray with our elders and pastors. Encounter night is about encountering the Holy Spirit. And so we purposefully have this time for you to come and and speak to our pastors and, and elders. And if you're looking for a miracle, I believe miracles happen today. It's not just for Bible stories. In fact, I was just, I just got my hair cut. <laughs> and, uh, and my, um, the lady that does it, she's phenomenal. She's a, she's a believer. Her son actually um, was studying in Chicago, I believe it was, to become a doctor so he could go out on uh, missions and live on a boat and, and, you know, basically work for a charity and, and um, you know, doctoring people up overseas. Well, he's about three months away from his, from finishing college. And as you know, probably, um, if you want to be a doctor, you have to do a lot of college. <laughs> There's a lot of schooling required. And so he's starting to be fatigued a lot. And long story short, he finds out he has cancer and he has to leave school. And he goes through a round of rounds and rounds of chemo and, um, and through many prayers, uh, he was cancer-free a few months ago. And, but recently, about, I guess it's about three weeks now, he was going in for a routine checkup and they scanned his chest because it was in his lungs and they found that it had, it had come back. Not one week later, he goes back and it's completely gone. And I believe that God wants to do miracles for you too. So I invite you to come. Don't sit in your seat. That's not what tonight's about. Come and speak with our elders and pastors. I mean, maybe your hope is full. Maybe everyone sitting here, your hope is full. And so I invite you to 
speak to the Lord and ask him to reveal to you someone who you can gather up with you. But if your hope isn't full, or if there's a miracle that you need or you know someone near you or, or there's somebody that you know that needs a miracle right now, I invite you to come now. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And we know and we believe that you're God of miracles and that you care deeply for each and every one of us. But there's some of us that may be struggling to see that. And I ask God that they would feel your presence, that they would know that you care for them deeply, that you're right there with them, walking through the pain, through the uncertainty. Reveal yourself, God. Maybe it's an addiction. God, provoke them to stand up, to receive. In the name of Jesus.